but someone who only ever gives to Georgia candidates, everybody else should stop emailing them so that when a Georgia candidate does decide to reach out, that donor is able to find that information, doesn't feel overwhelmed, and the campaigns that they really want to hear from don't get lost in the overall deluge that has happened. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Megan McInespy, is the Chief Innovation Officer at Grassroots Analytics, a growing firm that provides technology tools and data to democratic campaigns and progressive organizations with a focus on increasing digital fundraising by email and text. Before her current role, Megan worked as a strategist at two different digital fundraising firms. I asked Megan about her career and what she and Grassroots Analytics are working on currently. If you're interested in innovation in political fundraising and technology and data, you should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Megan at Grassroots Analytics. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Megan, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Megan McInespy. I'm currently the Chief Innovation Officer at Grassroots Analytics. I grew up north of Boston in Lowell, Massachusetts, very stereotypical Irish Catholic Democratic family from there. Both my parents were teachers, members of the union. We had neighbors that would run for city council, being little out there holding the signs is my first real foray into the political scene. But you know, throughout high school, my interest in politics continued to grow so much so that I decided the absolute only place that I would go to college was Washington, D.C. I had to get here. I ended up actually only applying to one college, Catholic University, a smaller school, but with that ability to make a larger impact there. Sort of halfway through my college career, I was interning in Elizabeth Warren's office in Boston one summer. It was the summer of Trump. I don't know if folks remember how much he dominated our Twitter feeds and watching the convention and everyone was just like, how can this be happening? So at that point, I was like, I just wish I could do something. And a really great regional director in Warren's office was like, well, you can. They're always hiring for organizers. Ohio is looking right now. So I entered into that process being like, oh, what the heck? I emailed my professors, was like, could this happen? They were like, yep, yep. I hadn't told my family. So when I got the call that was, okay, great, would love to have you. You just need a cell phone and a car. So I had the cell phone. I did not have a car. I ran downstairs, said, um, mom and dad, I haven't told you this yet, but 
I want to go out to Ohio and organize for Hillary Clinton, but I need a car. And I will forever thank my parents. I still kind of can't believe this. They gave me the Honda. They shared our minivan back at home in Lowell, but I took the Honda out to Ohio and yeah, had my first real like professional experience in politics out there. What was it about working in Ohio that gave you the political bug or increased that? And what'd you learn? Yeah. So I think that the people out there, for sure, I was 20 years old away from my family in not a structured school setting or something for the first time. The retired teachers that were keeping me fed and that just like truly believed, especially with how terrible everything with Trump was, that like we could win Ohio and that folks wouldn't vote that way. And obviously, we've learned a lot of lessons since, but just the folks that I connected with that really like this was a national race, but it was also local and like so focused for them on their communities and sort of that shared vision of a future and like what it could be. I noticed on your LinkedIn that you worked briefly for Wedding Wire. And I have a friend who is a data analyst or programmer over there. What was Wedding Wire like for you? So Wedding Wire was definitely post-2016 where I was like, all right, I'm not doing this again, right? Like not, this seems like as a child, I like really hated losing and sorry. I was like, I don't know if that can be my whole political or my whole professional career here. I worked as like a marketing intern there. Actually, it was my first ever exposure to sort of like sending emails to people to get them to open them. I really enjoyed the like marketing and outreach type aspects there. At the end of the day, I, well, I still love weddings. It wasn't maybe the same like motivating factor and didn't have that same sort of like call to get up in the morning that I got from politics, but I really enjoyed working there and it was also my first exposure to things just like Salesforce and like the technological tools that allow people to do their jobs better. You found yourself in the world of digital fundraising and digital fundraising data. How did you first start down that road? Yeah, so I started with an internship that then turned into my first job at Mothership Strategies, um, working there in digital fundraising. I worked with Ann Kirkpatrick. It was a really exciting uh, red to blue race there, learned a lot. So Mothership is a both a firm that's well known for raising a lot of money for candidates or was and is also very controversial sometimes in the space for some of their tactics and some of their aggressiveness. I've heard about that on the on the podcast. I'm happy to talk to any of the Mothership folks if they want to come on. What was your experience there? Like a good place to work? What did you learn? Yeah, so I had a great experience working there. I will say that what you realize on day one is they are so data driven and use all of like the technological tools available to them. It was coming from a liberal arts background where I sort of realized that maybe I had more of an interest in tech than I realized. But the fact of the matter is that when you solely follow the data, when you are following the biggest fundraising returns, it does oftentimes lead you down that road for the short term wins in the, you know, also at this time was when Trump was in office, right? So things were all capital letters, insane and needed immediate action. But that kind of fear based response 
it just can't be, I think, sustained in the same way that, you know, some of the more narrative takes that a lot of more folks are adopting nowadays can be. What did you learn about being a digital strategist, about writing emails, what worked and what didn't? What were you picking up as you entered your career in this field? Yeah, so coming in, I definitely had the approach that I think a lot of people still have of like emails, how hard can they be? But you have a really high bar here. You're asking people to give money just for like the promise of a better future and really thinking about like emotional arguments that also have like that logic based in a theory of change, connecting it all together. You have so little time to catch people's attention and so really engaging them quickly. And I think that the overall like art of email fundraising. I still love it. I still write a couple emails myself every month if I can get the time to. And I always have loved connecting with people. I love communicating with people. And it's sort of like this one-way communication in which you're really needing to make this argument for something that on its face is really hopeful for people to just be giving $5 over an email with this like hope it will make some kind of difference. Do you find yourself reading the fundraising emails from campaigns and having opinions about them that are incoming to you? Yes, I love reading. I would read fundraising emails all day, honestly, if I didn't have other things to do. What, um, I mean, what, if you were coaching someone on what makes a good one, what are the general principles you think that work? So above all else, that theory of change that is very intimately tied to what you are asking or who you are asking money for. I think a lot of times folks fall back on, oh, I am for Medicare for all. If you're for Medicare for all, then you should give me $5. But if you're for Medicare for all, there's a million and one places you can give that $5 in pursuit of that change. And so really personalizing it and making the connection with folks of like why this individual candidate is who you should be wanting to support. And again, you have only so much time to catch folks' attention, making sure that you're just writing very clearly and scannably and all of those things, and making sure that you are painting that picture for them about how it really could be that them just chipping in a little bit can contribute to something so much greater. When you would write an email for like Ann Kirkpatrick, who you mentioned, how much would you look at other emails that you might have written before or that other people had written before? How much did you have like access to samples when you started out? Yeah. So especially when first starting out, sort of that first step of being an email writer is oftentimes, look at this really successful email. Now write one that utilizes the same tactics or is applied for a different situation. So when I have trained other folks on writing emails, I oftentimes do put up one email, like two emails that follow these same structures and how that can be applied. But the biggest thing on that is making sure that you're making it more specific, not less, right? So like really like using this overall framework that folks maybe have responded to in the past, but like so deeply personalizing it that that email can only have come from that organization or that candidate. I guess I asked partially because one of the innovations that's happening in the cycle is the use of AI as a assistant to draft the first version of these based on having 
ingested a lot of previous emails. Would that have been helpful to have that when you were back writing emails at Mothership or subsequent jobs that you had? Yeah, I think that especially in sort of like a know the rules to break the rules type of way, so much of email fundraising is that iterating on the past, which I think that AI will be able to do wonderfully. But the next best email, right, the one that like really breaks through that you're like, this is amazing, is typically something sort of all of its own. And so if we are able to flip the script on right now, I'd say it's probably about like 80% of a copywriter's time is based on that, just like iterating, 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 and 20% or even maybe even only 10% is based on really trying to think of like the a new innovative tactic or something really different. If we can flip the script on that and have like 20% of time be working with AI to do those more iterative type of emails and then spend that 80% of the time really thinking creatively on that next best email and how to really connect with folks, then I think the space overall will be better for it, especially for just like the accessibility of email fundraising, that that like iterative process could make it a lot more accessible to folks. Why did you leave Mothership and go to Sapphire Strategies? So I had always loved teaching and training folks. I had done some of it at Mothership. Sapphire was a newer firm at the time. Um, Julia Asia had come from the D trip where she had done incredible work. And the opportunity to be their training manager there and helping like new hires be onboarded and make that like a larger part of my job than just the digital strategy execution was presented to me. And so did they recruit you or did you see a job opening? So I had, I think, reached out to Julia. Oh my gosh. Now I'm I'm probably going to have to go back to my emails. But Julia and I had met and had coffee. I think that especially in the digital fundraising world, there's a lot of philosophies overall around it. We could kind of tell right away at a Compass Coffee up in Shaw that we like clicked on like the way we thought about digital, how we approach digital, like that data-driven approach. And so from there, um, you know, they were looking to hire. And so I sort of applied for a not yet created job of digital training manager, was able to work with her to sort of like find the job that would best serve my talents and best serve the firm. How would you compare those two firms as places to work? So Sapphire was a lot smaller, right? There was a lot of still like day-to-day involvement from like every single person there. It was just an overall different vibe than the like finely tuned machine of uh, mothership in terms of just like crank out one after another. And it was also just a place that I did get to explore a little bit more of that creativity, think about like what systems and processes would work best versus plugging into what had sort of already become a well-oiled machine by the time I got there at mothership. One of the things that I've had as a theme in this podcast is sort of the political entrepreneurs that are out there that are starting firms like this or running them. What did you think of this as a business, this idea of you can have a firm that's helping campaigns try to win by raising more money in the digital space, which actually is a new development. There were no emails when I started fundraising software. So I something that I think is so great and why there are so many digital firms out there is that you can start it with a laptop, right? You can start it with like very little overhead. Julia had had her career at the D trip um, where she had learned a lot and, you know, sort of been part of that process. It's a great way for folks to 
not have to have like a ton of like upfront capital or investment and be able to bring those services with like, again, more of like a personal touch to campaigns. You know, digital firms can more specialize and such. Really, the reason for that proliferation of them is the fact that it's so easy that once you have like the expertise, the actual resources to do so isn't too high of a barrier to entry. When you looked around at the digital fundraising firm space, did you have to worry about competition? Yeah. So you're always pitching, right? And I love to pitch. I think that what is also great about some smaller firms or being at Sapphire at a time in which, you know, we were growing and scaling and hiring to fit like the demand of work is a lot different than when you are at a firm, have a set number of people and need to find the work to sort of sustain that. With pitches, it needs to be that good fit on either side, right? Like it's like dating. It's not just this one way. Okay, like please pick me, please pick me, especially with something like politics where um, it is so personal. You know, a lot of times when people are first time candidates running for Congress, like this is their life. They're going all in and like they deserve vendors and just deserve consultants that are going to like honor that and that can have like that really great working relationship. And so while always competition and in terms of that pitching process, I was really lucky that at Sapphire, there was like that emphasis on making sure it was like the right fit on both sides. Did you, when you were at Sapphire, employ data from your now firm grassroots analytics in the process? Yeah. So how I ever first even heard the name grassroots analytics was I was working on Cara Eastman's digital campaign. She was running in Nebraska's second. She comes from a social work background, had already been using grassroots, which to that time was sort of just getting into the digital data space in some ways, but it started really um, around like call time analytics and more of that like high dollar focus. And she had been using them for overall finance purposes. And so, you know, as when you do your due diligence, when you start with a new client, talking to the folks they've worked with in the past, and I was really impressed with the level of targeting and amount of data they were putting into these lists, which just like wasn't happening at the time. The other like sources were very like, has ever been a donor or maybe it was one time a donor to one person or clicked an email once. But using not just the demographic information about the donor themselves, like their occupation or where they're from, but like really looking at their donor history and like the behavior that they had exhibited in the past to be like a really great predictive factor of what kind of candidates that they would support in the future. So started and had great success with them there, had started talking to Danny, who's the founder and CEO of Grassroots Analytics, about some other ways that in the digital space, I could see them really making a mark and eventually decided to go over and join the party. You mean join his firm? Yeah, I joined Grassroots Analytics. What was he looking for and what tempted you to leave Sapphire? Yeah, so it was a long process from the first time Danny was sort of like, come work here, right? Something that Danny is really great at is finding sort of experts in like a certain field or, you know, they didn't have the digital expertise at the time. And he was always super open to, you know, learning about it, had a ton of questions and was like, all right, well, why don't, instead of me calling you, why don't you just actually come and work here? How big was his firm at the time? 
At the time, I think there was around 15 folks. Mm-hmm. When I had him on the show, it was probably around five, six, seven. He's been growing a lot. How big is it now? Now, I think that we're at just or, uh, just over 40, I believe. Um, you know, we've scaled down a little bit in the off year, looking to once again, really grow and surge into this on year. But yeah, have grown pretty significantly since then. Grassroots is sort of the then biggest impetus for me of deciding to leave Sapphire was actually more of like a lifestyle one. Grassroots Analytics was 100% in person. We're still 100% in person. During the pandemic, a lot of folks that had been at Sapphire had moved away. It became a little bit more of like this virtual environment. I really love going into an office every day, working with folks in person. And at that point, wanted that back in my day-to-day. And so that was sort of the, the tipping point over the edge of, okay, like let's see what can happen here. So for people who are not familiar with grassroots analytics, could you just sort of summarize what they do? Yeah. So at our core, we are a progressive data company. That's sort of the thing that powers everything else that we do. We have a ton of data solutions for folks for online fundraising, more that traditional call time and high dollar fundraising. And then also have, especially over like the last year or so, really looking to invest in other companies that are, you know, providing tech and are thinking about the solutions for the fundraising space, as well as investing internally in solutions that allow for sort of a more sustainable digital fundraising ecosystem, allow to really break down those barriers between the high dollar finance fundraising and the digital fundraising. For far too long, there has been this like big wall in between those when in reality they can really complement one another. And so we have yeah really looked to invest both externally and internally in like those solutions for the next iterations of fundraising in politics. So you started as a digital director. What were you doing during that segment of your time there? Grassroots Analytics works with hundreds of down-ballot campaigns. That's really like the bread and butter. We have 3% model. Wait, so are you saying that you get paid by taking a 3% of the money raised? Yes, for our like down-ballot. And that, that service still exists in a form today. I was just sort of helping devise resources, helping all the folks that were on that model, like make the most out of any of the digital data they were getting from us. So that was basically like state Senate and below primarily. And then on the flip side there, having come from the digital fundraising world, knowing what acquisition budgets look like, knowing what was like sorely needed in the acquisition space, more and more was on, I guess it is sales is what it would be. It doesn't always feel like sales to me. It feels like, you know, talking to folks that do the same thing to help them succeed in that and get the data they need. But I started to do more and more down the like revenue route and again, helping devise different ways we could use our data to help folks in that space. So I I think I understand what you mean when you say acquisition, but I'm not sure if everybody does. Are you talking about uh, campaigns basically buying emails from grassroots that they are going to then email and fundraise off of those people? Yep. So buying emails. We also have a texting rental tool, which was the first of its kind as texting fundraising was sort of 
popping up in big ways. A lot of folks uh, didn't find it very accessible. It is a little bit more technical to get set up. So helping with acquisition on that front and them starting their own texting programs in-house that just like more high dollar data modeling and helping folks also just clean up the data that they already have on the acquisition front. Is there controversy at all about the selling of email addresses and text addresses of donors or potential donors? Yes. And I used to be the skeptic. I wouldn't say I was anti, but I certainly was wary of like what we'd call a cold acquisition. It was that first race back with Kara Eastman, who I'd mentioned was like a social worker who did not have like a wealthy network. And seeing that there was no cost efficient way otherwise to really pinpoint folks that would be excited to support her. Social workers aren't known for their deep pockets, but when they see someone who represents them and who they think there should be more folks like running for office, chipping in a five dollars is can really add up across the board. And there just was no other cost effective way to reach those folks. I think that a lot of the opt-in options out there too, like aren't always super clear, is not always there's difficulties with opt-in in that people might not realize that they're getting opted into digital fundraising because they filled out uh, form on a survey or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. It's all oftentimes sort of in the fine print. I mean, if if you're on a campaign, let's say you are uh, trying to raise money for a congressional race and you obviously want to have a large list of people who would want to support you, what are the best ways to build that list that include and don't include buying emails and text numbers? Yeah. So there's always paid ads, but those have become a lot less effective with some of the iOS updates and Facebook changes. You always are going to start right with that core group of like the people who know you, the people in your community. Other times folks who are running for office have done some type of community work in the past um, or have some type of professional network that they're able to start out with. And then from there, I know you said like, you want to build a large list. It is my dream that everybody will have very tiny, but very hyper-targeted lists of folks that really want to support them. I mean, it used to be, I would hear the way that you do that is, the best way to do that is organically. You know, you start with the people, the people that you know, and, and you branch out from that and you have to take a long time and you have to be authentic in your communications and all of those you would hear those being best practices. How does acquisition fit into the, to doing it right? One of the biggest issues with that sort of right way to go about it is that it is that presumption of already there being a built-in network. Like there is no wonder why our democracy is still not really representative when, um, and even still to this day for a lot of the biggest like recruitment sort of organizations in the space, one of the first things they have candidates do is 
whip out their cell phone and start assigning dollar amounts to the people in your contacts list, right? And if you had wealthy parents and then went to prestigious schools and went to business school and have your whole MBA group, right, then that list is going to be pretty beefy to start off. But when last cycle grassroots, we worked really closely with Maxwell Frost, who's the first Gen Z member of Congress. His friends were still getting their first jobs. He did not come from a wealthy family. That sort of idea of there even being a like first list or a network to build off of did not exist for him. But what there was, was an insane amount of people across the country that really resonated with his story and that by learning about it, chose to support him. And I mean, it was a huge... At the time of the primary, he'd really risen, and so it didn't feel like as big of an upset as it was when he sort of started out as a 25-year-old community organizer who was looking to get into this race against established sitting state senators and such. What, what is typical return on investment for somebody who buys their first list from grassroots analytics? What could they expect? It's a very wide range, right? I would say that the reason why we do stay committed to offering that percentage model, like no barrier to entry, is that for down ballot campaigns or folks that don't already have like a a base or can't already be paying for digital consultants, it's a lot more limited there. And so obviously with that, it's just whatever that 3% is. But for folks like across the board, it's really hard to pin it down. I would say that, you know, it depends on the cycle, all of the points. But can you expect, like, if you buy $10,000 worth of names, can you expect to likely exceed that in what you get out of that group of people? Yeah, absolutely. Well, absolutely. If purchasing from a vendor that is being really careful about data. Yeah, I'm talking about purchasing from you guys. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if there was issues, we always go back, make sure that that does stand. But if we don't have 10,000 worth of people that we think would be a good fit for your campaign, like we will tell you that it only helps us and helps the space overall. Like we want to have that reputation. And so we try to be really diligent on only um, sort of selling what we know are high quality names for the individual purchasing them. It would seem to me that the people whose names are being sold would get increasingly less likely to give as the nth candidate buys them and sends another email to them. I personally have started to disregard pretty much all congressional candidates that come across my path unless I'm connected to them in some way. What have you learned about the people on these lists and their willingness to be helpful when they're getting sold over and over. Yeah, absolutely. I think that something that previous guests you've had on talk about this sort of tragedy of the commons as it comes to email fundraising and grassroots is only one vendor in this space. While we have like some limits on, you know, how many times we share within a certain time period, those names are now out there and being like sold and swapped at like such alarming rates. So I've actually been really excited over this past year, we've been developing sort of our next product, the Click Collective, we call it, which is somewhat similar to a co-op model, but is free to join and allows for So, us- so what does Click Collective do? So Click Collective allows for 
us to see the activity data of a really like wide range of programs and folks who have decided to opt into the collective. And for completely free of cost, we'll do what has been known like sort of as like reactivation, right? Where we'll find on people's lists, folks that maybe haven't engaged and let them know that they should be emailing them or specific targetings they should be using. But to my end of us needing to actually solve this tragedy of the commons problem, oftentimes I see people's solutions be a different type of way to acquire emails, right? It's just as important that we stop people from emailing folks that do not want to get those emails as we find the good prospects for them. And so this like allows us to tell folks running these digital programs, this chunk of people on, on your list like based on all of their previous behaviors, they're never going to give. Like they only ever give locally or they haven't given in a really long time. Stop bothering them, right? Stop bothering those people. Or if it's someone who only ever gives to Georgia candidates, everybody else should stop emailing them so that when a Georgia candidate does decide to reach out, that donor is able to find that information, doesn't feel overwhelmed, and the campaigns that they really want to hear from don't get lost in the overall deluge that has happened. About how many campaigns have opted into this Click Collective? I think we're at a little over 100 campaigns. And then we also have some like nonprofits and some other just like organizations as well. Are there competitive groups that are doing similar things that are run by other folks out there? So there are co-op models that have this element of sharing data to them, but just for the purpose of further acquisition. So in those, you share all of your information. And then for, you know, a certain price point that's typically over a dollar, which does like preclude a lot of smaller campaigns from participating, um, you can purchase acquisition for your list. And there's some other products with the sort of like reactivation slash like will help clean up your list for a cost um, associated out there. As far as I know, that we are the only sort of this collective approach where it's completely free to get this kind of data analysis and segmentation to know who to and who not to be emailing. I had a guest on the show who was trying to get the emailing vendors that the software that a lot of folks in the space use for sending emails to crack down on some of the practices that different firms were using the spam and scam type things. Do you think that is a problem? And do you think that's a problem particularly that should be solved by the software vendors? So I definitely see it as a problem what is good about some of these more stringent like spam filtering approaches that Gmail and Yahoo and such are taking is that the cream can rise to the top. I mean, hopefully those could play a part in diminishing some of this spammy, as folks usually call it, approach. But I think that it is very difficult to ask that of the vendors, especially how a lot of these email providers have been bought out by other corporations. It can even be to those email vendors benefit to have higher volumes of emails going out through their servers. 
And then there always comes that, like, who is the, like, ruler of this, right? Like, who does draw these lines when even within certain firms, sometimes folks have differing opinions on exactly where those lines are drawn. I think that it's a difficult to imagine um, an ecosystem where those vendors themselves are being the regulators. Another thing that people talk about is how email fundraising or digital fundraising has intersected with a kind of performative political character like the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, people who seem to seek controversy for prominence and also tied to their fundraising. Do you see that happening and do you see any remedy for that? Yeah. So I think that a lot of times the performativeness, you know, folks have their websites as well, right? It is a unfortunate side effect of this democratization of fundraising overall that you can end up with a situation in which bad actors leverage that for their gain and by you know being more and more performative. I have a hard time seeing the solution to sort of discouraging that behavior without also punishing folks that don't already have their built-in wealthy networks and that are sort of going about this in the correct way. But I do think that sort of there being more of that outreach from campaigns and there being channels and ways for campaigns to reach out directly to folks to support them as opposed to just doing the stunt that gets you on MSNBC so that donors will find you is a channel that we should preserve. So you moved after some amount of time, year and a half-ish, at Grassroots Analytics to a different title, Chief Innovation Officer, which is what you are now. What did that signify? What is the job that you do now? So grassroots was and still is, you know, that like startup environment, things from like week to week were not the same, never mind over the sort of the entire course of that year and a half. At that point in time, we were really looking at what it was that grassroots wanted to contribute to this space overall. And that investment in tech that is you know, external investment in tech that is doing really great things and is making the fundraising space more accessible as well, as well as, you know, internally innovating, creating things like the Click Collective, really thinking about the solutions for the fundraising space as a whole. There's also the point in time where we got a CFO and we got a general counsel and took some of those steps from going from the more chaotic early stages of a startup um, where everyone's kind of doing everything and, you know, things are flying to a little bit more of a structured approach and with some more like institutional type of supports. Is that better? Yeah, I think that it is always a give and a take. I think that it's definitely better for where grassroots is now. It's allowing for like long-term planning that we never would have had otherwise. Sometimes it does take a little extra time when general counsel needs to review a contract that my internet law degree was just sort of winging it on. But I think that Overall, it's like a great just sort of next step for us. And we're 100% in person, which is definitely not the uh, in vogue thing right now, but I think is what has also allowed us to keep a lot of that startup energy and spirit and the same 
opportunities for anybody who has an idea to really pursue it. And I think that without that, it could be a little too easy to fall into sort of the worst parts of like bureaucracy or formalizing things a little bit more. You mentioned up top something about grassroots analytics making external investments. What are you talking about there? Yeah, so we've invested in several like tech tools in the space. We recently, this past year, publicly invested in Quiller, which is an AI writing assistant for uh, digital fundraising. One of the things that is really core to grassroots is we have the practitioners working on the tech, right? Like right now, our VP of product, she started in a call time room. She has done all the things that we are creating our data to do for people and sort of like learned the tech later. And something that was really attractive to me about Quiller and like how they were approaching this AI problem was that it was based in like practitioners and folks who have truly done the job before. And so I think are really well equipped to then create the AI solution. How about internally? You mentioned that you're putting money into innovation within grassroots analytics. What sort of things can we expect in terms of new products or data or services? Yeah, so this past year has really been dedicated to Click Collective, creating that collective solution for the overall email ecosystem. I think that we're seeing more and more that text messages are becoming an overwhelming deluge as well. So we're looking into ways that we can similarly help sort of control the flow or make sure folks are more smartly investing in the texting they're doing. Something that's different from the email fundraising space is that every time you send a fundraising text, that costs money, right? It is not the free-for-all that you can do of testing out emails, but that also means that a lot of folks who acquired a ton of mobile numbers last cycle when they were sort of a bonanza on them and folks were still figuring out the best way to use this medium. They now have a ton of data and do not know who those best prospects are or how to really use it. Helping digital firms and campaigns optimize their mobile data is really our next biggest forays. I think that the biggest long-term goal that I can see for grassroots is to make it a lot cheaper also to run for office and to raise the money that you need to run for office. And so through like optimizations, like with email, like with mobile fundraising, as they started with the call time things, really looking at AI and other more integrated approaches to make it more accessible and cheaper for folks to run for office. I remember when my firm was around 40 some people, which you you said you are, that there was always kind of a cycle of growing pains as you reach for the next level. What are the biggest challenges for grassroots analytics at this stage of growth? Yeah. So one challenge we really saw over this past year is that we did a big overhaul of our internal tech system and the way that we were processing data and interacting with it. It's hard when folks have done their job in a certain way and that's like what they've signed up for and like what they've gotten good at and to really get them engaged in that change is really the solution there that you need to have folks like 
be able to see why things are happening, have them invested in and like them at every point of the way, give like their input on how things can like truly get better. That's also how you avoid changing things just for the sake of changing things. Sometimes a process that might look outdated or might take a little bit longer has true value to it. And you will only know that if you're talking directly to the folks who work with it every day. And so I think that sort of like balancing our need for modernization and and as we were growing quickly with making sure folks were able to like truly participate in every point of that process. Well, you've made it at a relatively young age after not that many jobs to a pretty, you know, decent position as a key player in a growing firm. Where do you want to take your career from here? Yeah, I think that for the foreseeable future, what is so great about my role and like what is so great about grassroots analytics is that it's always like looking for the next, like it is that innovation, it is like meeting the challenges. I feel like I almost just don't even know in two years what the biggest challenges are that we'll be able to look at and tackle. So I think for the foreseeable future, just making fundraising as accessible as possible for folks, uh, no matter what that looks like. I think that really investing in and training the folks that are at grassroots to be active players in that. I love when someone you trained is smarter than you. That is the best. That is the moment of making it. Um, So I am... Uh, I'm not so naive to not think that there might be folks at grassroots who can do my job better than me one day. And so when that day comes, thinking about what would be next, I think that I do want to stay in the political space. I love down ballot races, which I haven't have been able to work with as directly as maybe I once was able to and like to. So I think my next chapter would definitely involve something that was like more hyper localized as well. What did I fail to ask you that I should have? I think you covered it. Yeah. The tragedy of the email commons problem, I promise it is solvable to everybody out there. And maybe it isn't our solution, right? That's not saying that we have the only one, but I love email fundraising. I love the power that it's been able to give candidates that otherwise wouldn't have had access. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my favorite subject, somehow people at dinner parties are just not as interested in the email fundraising ecosystem. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's, it's great to have the chance to talk to you and to catch up with what Grassroots Analytics has been up to. Anything else you want to say? No, just thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. That was Megan. She's at grassrootsanalytics.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.